We uh, have seen recently movies and books about uh, heaven being for real, uh, as if there wasn't enough testimony to that already, or I needed anything more to believe that. And this morning, though we turn our hearts to a message that the, uh, the world doesn't embrace so easily, probably won't be on the big screen over at the North Gate 14, would be the fact the Bible also says hell is for real. And uh, it's, a, it's a much harder message to, to preach, but it is, it is an important one. And so this morning as we uh, continue in our series of things that we've been talking about that we need to be unashamed of, there are eight things I believe that we need to believe in order to be unashamed witnesses of Christ. Right? And we've talked about the fact that God is a seeking God, that he is a missionary God, and if God is a missionary God and we are his people, then that would set us free, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, that it is, that it is the place where God works to bring people into a saving knowledge of his Son, and so we should be unashamed, and we are his witnesses that God is actually making his appeal through us, through People like that who isn't especially, you know, just God places people in our lives that as we bear witness, as we point people to Jesus, the reality is we need to believe the harvest is plentiful and people like that will come to know Christ and give their lives fully to him and come to know him and love him and walk with him because Jesus came for sinners. He came for the least, for the lost, for people like us and people like those who stand outside these doors and that Jesus is the only way, that there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And today we turn to the seventh thing I believe that we need to believe if we're going to be unashamed of the gospel, and that is the fact that hell is for real, the reality of a hell. With that, we are in chapter 25 of Matthew. I'm going to read from 31 to 46. Really, my text today is verse 46, with the backdrop of the rest of this parable, a parable that's familiar to many folks, often called the parable of the sheep and the goats. Hear then the word of God. When the Son of Man comes in His glory with all the angels with Him, and He's going to sit on His glorious throne, and before Him is going to be gathered all of the nations, And he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those who are on his right hand, Come, come you who are blessed of my father and inherit the kingdom. It has been prepared for you from the foundations of the world. When I was hungry, you gave me food. And when I was thirsty, you gave me drink. And when I was a stranger... And you welcomed me, and I was naked, and you clothed me, and I was sick, and you visited me, and I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you and naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them and say, Truly, I say to you as you did it for the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. You did it to me. And then he will say to those who are on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into an eternal fire that is prepared for the devil and his angels. For when I was hungry, you gave me no food, and when I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. 
When I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. When I was naked, you did not clothe me. When I was sick and in prison, you did not visit me. And then they also will answer saying, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And, and we did not minister to you. And then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into an eternal life. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered once again this morning into your presence to sit at your feet to hear from your word that you would speak to us the truth about ourselves in the world that you have created and reality as it truly is, that you would deliver us from our fantasies and our, our neglect and our ignorance and our apathy and you would speak to us about eternal things, true things, life-shaping and changing things for your glory and for the good of your people. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. These days, some just use hell as another swear word. Just another way to emphatically say and express their anger. When the truth is, it's a destiny. It's a place. It's a real place. And this is not a topic that I turn to lightly. It's one of those that I think a lot of preachers wrestle with. You know, can you get away with not preaching it? Because it's hard. It's heavy. You know, it's difficult. In some ways, it's painful. And there are preachers who specifically have stated that their ministry is such that they don't talk about sin or hell. But I think that is a mistake. I think it's a betrayal of Jesus. Because nobody spoke of hell more than Jesus. And to follow him and to be faithful, to teach, as the Great Commission says, to teach them everything that the Lord Jesus has taught us. That we cannot do that and neglect this topic as sober and as painful as it could be. And the fact that it probably should bring tears to our eyes even as we talk about it. And it's one of those things that I would probably not believe in if it wasn't in the Bible. In other words, left to my own devices, would I, would I think it up? Would I dream it up? Would I want to, you know, in my natural self, as I logic it out or as I do whatever, am I going to? No, I could probably do, you know, much more in if, if I left all that out, like some preachers. You know, you just leave it out. Dabney says, this is in your bulletin, which is full of stuff today. I don't know where you're going to write your notes, you know, find a margin somewhere. Dabney says, this is uh, Robert Dabney says, it is presumed that there is not a right-minded man or woman in any church who would not hail with delight the assurance that every creature of God would finally be holy and happy. I mean, how many of us would not want in some respect for that to be true? Provided that it could only be given with certainty. The scripture gave us great confidence to say and believe that. Right? And with a consistency with the honor of God Himself. That it would be the consistent teaching of the Bible and consistent with God's justice. But it's so difficult and painful to believe that, that people actually do go to a place like hell. That many people would just simply deny its existence. They would choose to disbelieve or they choose to ignore. They would choose to just block it out. But we know that that only makes it worse. 
If somebody has some dread disease, if someone has cancer, and we, we don't go to the doctor, you know, we ignore the symptoms, we pretend it isn't there, we, we disbelieve or block it out or live in denial, it only makes it worse if the diagnosis is true. Bible warns us not to sugarcoat the truth or to gloss it over or to pretend or to neglect. You can go all the way back to Ezekiel there in your bulletin, Ezekiel 13, 3 and 10, as God is speaking to some unfaithful prophets in the Old Testament. And he says to them, woe to the foolish prophets. And what makes them foolish is this. A foolish group of men who, who say they speak for God, prophets, is this. They follow their own spirit. They, 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 in other words, they decide what they want to believe is true and good and right and speak that. And he says, they have misled my people. They do not speak for me. And they've misled my people in this way. They've said peace when there is no peace. They said everything's okay. I'm okay. You're okay. When everything is not okay. When God is saying something else, they follow their own spirit. They promote their own ideas. They deny the truth as God has given it to us. It's very much like the devil tempting Eve in the garden. And you remember the very, one of the very first things the devil said is, did God really say that you will surely die if you eat of the true? And so in our culture and today, there is much of that. Did God really say that there's such a thing as hell. We love the whole idea of heaven. We'll, we'll you know, make the movies and go in this regard, but did God really say? It's kind of like teaching a child about everything in life. Teaching them the, all the ways that it works and the right ways and the wrong ways and teaching them the safe ways and the unsafe ways and teaching them everything that they need to know about life and training them up but neglecting to tell them about gravity. Neglecting to teach them that falling from very high places can have deadly consequences. This thing of gravity is to neglect to tell them. And it's one of those things as we come to the word of God to teach everybody all, all that is true and all that is right in the ways and neglect to tell you about gravity, to tell you about a deadly fall. Hell stands at this center of a biblical worldview. There is God, God imparts to us his view of the way things are. As the creator, he says, I've made a, a universe with a moral fabric. I've created the universe in a certain way, and the heavens declare my glory, and you are created in my image, and you guys are moral agents created in the image of God, and there's, a, there's an accountability to that. There's an expectation to that that, that God desires from us. It's a fundamental way of seeing the universe. There's right and wrong and good and evil. And there is, there is a heaven and a presence of God and a future. And there is, he says, a hell. In other words, that what we say and what we do and how we live and all of those things really matter because there is a day that those things will be held to account. And I don't know why we would shy from that because even in our small culture and world, almost every society has some system of justice where we try to hold people accountable to the way that they live and the things that they do, that there is a right and a wrong, a good and an evil. And if you do not follow the way of righteousness and justice, there is a punishment. 2 Corinthians 5.10, it's there in your bulletin, says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ 
so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done. Well, in the body, in this life, whether it was good or whether it was evil, that there is a day that we will stand before him. There is a day when each one will receive what is due. There is a day when good and evil are sorted out like sheep and goats. There is a day when it is made right and just. Passage that we have before us this morning, Jesus paints this picture of reality quite, you know, starkly, quite powerfully. As Jesus says, just this a day is coming when the Son of Man, who was here originally in humility, in here to live and to die for sin, who was here to, uh, to serve and to give and to sacrifice, a day is coming when he will return and he will come as king and as judge. And it says he will gather all the nations before him. And there will be a great judgment, a great accounting and a settling out of things. What we say and how we live will really matter. It's a very emotional topic. And the problem is it cannot be decided by emotion. It is very poignant, it is very powerful, it is very moving, but the the issue can't be decided by our emotion, which is often the way people arrive at what they believe. It just can't be that way. I just can't, it's just too hard to believe that people would go to a place like that, and therefore I don't. I, I, I deny it. I just choose to not believe it. People reject it for logical and emotional and moral and all kinds of Reasons, but I would say that whether heaven is for real or whether hell is for real we should not be decided on such grounds, but we need to decide by looking at the Scripture and we need to decide by listening to Jesus, particularly as followers of Jesus. Many of these issues are decided by sitting at his feet and listening to what he has to say, and what he has to say is parables like this. And as I went to do this sermon, I have to say there were so many texts to draw from, passages to draw from, scriptures to put together. I've, you know, selected five or six, and the, you know, but there are many more. Jesus spoke more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. You know, it's interesting. I have Kreef's quote there, second point in your bulletin. He says, there is a popular fallacy about Jesus that he spoke only comforting words. And that the fear of hell really began with St. Paul and some of the other writers. The textual truth, though, is actually the opposite. Jesus uttered many of what we would call hellfire and damnation sermons. And that no one in the Bible, not Paul, not John, not anyone else in the Bible, spoke more about hell than Jesus did. We get 96%, making numbers up again, 96% of our doctrine of hell from Jesus' lips passage before us is one of those hellfire and brimstone sermons, so to speak, you know, and we preach like that. The day is coming and you'll stand and he's going to separate you out and there are going to be sheep and there are going to be goats and some are going to enter into the blessedness and the kingdom of their father and some will be separated, he says, into an eternal fire. It's a difficult message to preach. The day is going to come when the world as we know it will end. I don't know about you, but that gets easier and easier for me to believe. The world as we know it, it it cannot go on like this. I don't know how much, you know, and everybody's predicting the end. I don't go there, but the world as we know it will cease. 
And the day will come according to the planning and foreknowledge of God the Father. The court of justice will be convened and the human race will be held responsible and eternal destinies will be determined. Verse 34, the king will say to those who are on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom. It has been prepared for you from the foundations of the world. This has been the plan. This has been the way it would be. This is the fabric of the moral universe, you know, that there would be an accounting. In verse 41, he will say to those who are on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed. You who bear your own sin because you did not have a Savior to bear it for you into an eternal fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. Just take a moment to pop another one of those. The devil does not reign in hell. You know, there are so many of those popular pictures where he goes around with his fork and he is in charge and he's torturing people or he's doing this or that and no he is a prisoner there right this is this was a place of his punishment he does not reign in hell right that is his place uh, of eternal separation of God from God he does not reign in that place I've heard from many people say things like you know all my friends are going to be there we'll just get together and have a party these, these ideas that we, I don't know if that somehow diffuses the, the painful thought of such a place. But if there is such a place, and, I, and if there is, I'm pretty sure I'm going there, and so, but so are all my friends, and we will just, we'll all be there together. It will be like a party. No, it won't. No, it won't. It won't be like that. Jesus gives us this shocking and terrifying vision of hell as a place of eternal fire, of conscious, eternal torment this Jesus who spoke so much of love this Jesus who said do unto others as you would have them do unto you you know the golden rule and spoke of how they'll know us by the way that we love one another that this same Jesus who spoke so much of love and people get a hold of that to say that think that maybe that's all he said it is the same Jesus that gives us our doctrine The image of fire, look at uh, your bulletin under the second point. We'll just walk through a couple of different places. Jesus says it in different ways at different times and in so many contexts. He teaches it. He says, Matthew 3.12, his winnowing fork is in his hand. You know, this fork of separation to separate the wheat from the chaff. And you'll get that through there. Jesus, to separate the wheat and the chaff, the sheep and the goats, those who believe from those who do not believe, those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. And so this winnowing fork, he says, is in his hand. Judgment is at hand, so to speak, right? And he will clear the threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn. The chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. Matthew 13, 42, it says he will throw them into the fiery furnace and there there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There there will be suffering. It will be bad. Revelation 21, 8, it says the faithless and the detestable as murderers and the sexually immoral sorcerers and idolaters and all liars. He says their portion will be in a lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is a second death, a spiritual death, an eternal death. Jesus also uses the image of exile and darkness. In Matthew 25, this same chapter that we're in earlier, in one of the earlier parables, there are a couple of them here. 
There he uses this image. He says, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So that outer darkness outside of the presence of God. Or again in Mark chapter 9, 47 to 48, he says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It would be better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Or Paul in 2 Thessalonians who gives a summary statement when he says this. He picks up on this image of Jesus as he says, a day is coming when the Son of Man will return and these things will happen as from the foundations of the world. God has determined that this is the way the universe will shake out. And he says, 2 Thessalonians 1.7, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven when he returns in his power and glory with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. It's not idle. When he comes in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who disobey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, he says they will suffer the punishment of an eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. So these are images. They're, They're hard. I think that they are all metaphors. I don't think any one of them is necessarily exactly what it's going to be. I don't know what hell is going to be like. I know that it is separation from the presence of God, separation from the presence of his glory, that if God is light and in him is no darkness at all, that to be cast into the outer darkness in an eternal, in absolute way, if we're afraid of the little bit of dark that we have here, he says the day is coming, there's a darkness, right? So it's to be cast from his presence, to be separated from God. It involves a uh, 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 Suffering in the sense of fire, if you would try to come up with some image, some humid experience that, that would convey something horrible, something that, that we would not want to experience, we might convey fire, burning in fire. I don't think they're literal, I don't think they're meant to be, but what they're meant to communicate is probably worse than any of these human images can possibly capture. And I wanted to touch quickly to say that hell is forever. And I say this because there is, there is even within the, the, the church in different places where people wrestle with this whole doctrine and they, they want to make it less uh, difficult, to make it more palatable, to make it easier to uh, accept and so they look for alternatives, and one of the alternatives that finds traction and is out there, if you read up, even on some uh, popular Christian writers, they believe in what we call conditional immortality. And that just says that when we stand on that day, that some will be granted life and some will be, and that's why the other name for it is annihilationism, others will be annihilated. They will just cease to exist. It's basically the atheistic worldview that, you know, you die, you cease to exist. And, and so there's this view that it's a conditional immortality. The day will come when those who know and love and serve and follow him in this life will, will, will enter into that life eternally. And those who don't will simply cease to exist. Their immortality was conditioned and they didn't meet the condition and so they are annihilated and they cease to exist. It's more palatable, it's easier to think about people simply ceasing to exist than being punished in some way for an eternity. But the problem is that I don't believe the scripture leaves us that option. 
You know, and just a couple of quick things in, in saying this. And one is verse 46, where we just were, where he says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into an eternal life. And in my translation right here, I actually have eternal punishment and eternal life right under each other. And one of the things you see there is that both punishment and life are, are governed by the same descriptive term, eternal. And it's the same word in the Greek, the ionios, the, of the ages forever. You know, and so there is this, this whatever it is for heaven, the eternal life is the same that it is for the punishment. It is eternal, eternal life, eternal punishment. He puts them side by side. Or Revelation 14.11 there in your bulletin, it says the smoke of their torment goes up forever. And they have no rest day or night. They have no rest. cannot commit a little sin against an infinite God. Any sin against an infinite God is an infinite offense. John Piper says, instead of coming to the Bible and saying that I feel that endless suffering cannot be just and so the Bible cannot be teaching it, rather since the Bible teaches it, it must be just and therefore, oh, how infinitely dreadful sin must be, how infinitely blameworthy it must be to treat the glory of God with contempt, how infinite must be the insult to God when we do not trust his promises, what infinite beauty and glory and purity and holiness God must have, that endless suffering is a just and fitting punishment for disobeying his word. Let's turn our hearts then to just pull ourselves out of that deep pit of despair. And we do this from time, and this is what the Bible does. It gives us, it gives us both of these realities. But what, the main reason Jesus teaches hell is to make the bad news clear enough, the diagnosis clear enough, that the good news is great news. Right, that it, is, that, that it is the contrast between the two, that, that if the bad news isn't very bad, the good news isn't all that great. But it is this contrast that that um, I think that Jesus uses, that Jesus presents for us to see the fullness of the gospel. See, Jesus comes not just to present the fact that there is a hell. In fact, some people don't even know that he taught on it. They grasp onto the, the other things that he said. But Jesus said the other things to deliver us and to save us from that reality. Right? That Jesus comes as a savior. And often I've talked to people in the world and said, you know, if you, if you talk about the savior, they say, saved from what? And I can tell you one of the reasons they don't know safe from what is because we don't speak of hell as a real place, as a real destiny, as, as what we will reap in the end. Jesus is a savior. He talks about it because he wants to save us. The disease has to be properly diagnosed and explained or people will not seek treatment. If I tell you you have a head cold, and you go home, but you really have terminal cancer. I have done you no, I have done you a disservice. I have not loved you. I have not cared for you. I have not reached out in a way that will change and save your life. Jesus says that he is a great physician. And it's not the well who need a doctor, but the sick. And it is Jesus who diagnoses the sickness. And it's Jesus who calls us to faith in himself. And so John 16, it's after a sermon like this, where there is that sober, 
weight that sits on you, that you hear then the words of John 3.16. I hope they come ringing like a trumpet, cutting through the darkness to say, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that you should not perish. That's what it's all about. Right? Jesus came and, and lived the life that he lived and he died the death that he died so that you would not perish but have eternal life. And so Jesus says, put your trust in me, put your faith in me, put your hope in me. Enter through the narrow gate. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and there are many who enter by it, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Jesus says, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent him has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. It is impossible to exaggerate the the glory of those words. It is impossible to overstate that Jesus says, if you trust in me, you will never enter into judgment. Which is why I say, you know, that perfect love casts out fear. That on that day, he says, we can stand before him in joy. If you have not put your trust in Christ, if you have not put your faith in him, that is what the entire Bible is about from beginning to end, is that God has created a world like this. And all we like sheep have gone astray. And God so loved the world that he gave his only son that if you would trust him, that if you would believe in him, that you would believe that what he did on the cross, he did for you, that he bore in his own body your sin to deliver you from that destiny. And he says, so that you might have eternal life. And if you've never trusted in Christ, I would encourage you to do it today, to reach out and put your trust in him. For us who believe, and there are many who this morning know these things, But for us who believe then, the final thing would be to stand with Paul. As we think about evangelism, as we think about being faithful witnesses for Christ and to speak the good news in all of its power and its glory, we also have to believe. And I believe that if we're going to be unashamed and we're going to be faithful, we have to believe that hell is for real. And people go there. And they need Jesus. And they need a Savior. They need one to bear away their sin and to cleanse them. So they will stand free on that day. And that I, as Paul says, Romans 1.16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation from hell, from death, from darkness, from separation from God. It is the power that delivers people into eternal life and raises them from the dead. Our calling is to witness for Jesus with the power of the gospel. Let me close just with this picture. So we talked about our children and not teaching them about gravity. J.D. Salinger wrote a book called The Catcher in the Rye. I don't know if they make them read it in school anymore or not. Back in the day, we had to read such literature. And uh, in reading Catcher in the Rye, it's, I, I don't remember a ton about it, but the ending is the thing that you always remember. When it, what does it mean? And you have to imagine a rye field with, with the grain so high you can't see where you're going in this field. And toward the end of the book, this uh, young girl, Phoebe, asks the main character, Holden, what he wants to do with his life. And he says this. This is how Holden answers. He says, I'm standing on the edge of some crazy cliff. And what I have to do is I have to catch everybody if they start to go over the cliff. 
I mean, if they're running and they don't know where they're going, they're running through this field of rye and they don't see that there's this cliff ahead of them and they're, if they're running and they don't look where they're going, I have to come out from somewhere and I have to catch them. And that's all I do all day. I'd just be the catcher in the rye. My friends, we are the catchers in the rye. We stand as if, as if in front of this crazy cliff and if we're we see them running and they're they're not looking where they're going we would come out from somewhere and catch them and in some sense that's what we would do all day believing there is a cliff and believing the gospel would set them free pray with me father in heaven as we come this morning this is a difficult difficult topic There's nothing to do but to get our hands dirty and to wade into the muck and to see what is so difficult to stare at. But your word is so clear. And I pray, Father, that you would help us not to shy away from the truth, but that we would speak the truth with boldness, that you would teach us that as we believe that there is some crazy cliff into which people fall and perish eternally, that we would then be moved to be catchers, that you might use us to save some, that we would speak the name of Jesus to those who need a Savior, that they might come to faith in him and be saved. All these things we ask and we pray in the strong name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.